if you're new to this whole world of baby led weaning and starting solid foods, you might still be on the fence as to whether this approach is going to work for you. And if that's the case, I want to send you my free feeding guide called Will Baby Led Weaning Work for My Baby? This is a guide that contains a decision tree map that you can work your way through to determine if this is the right approach for you guys and then when it's time to start. Grab your copy of Will Baby Led Weaning Work for My Baby on my website at babyledweaning.co slash resources. I was doing my breakfast dishes this morning, turned the garbage disposal on, and then heard that terrible noise when you know something is in the disposal, but like you can totally tell the damage has already been done. Sure enough, it was an easy peasy tiny spoon, totally shredded, which if I've learned anything about these baby lead weaning spoons from Easy Peasy is that the garbage disposal and the dog both love them. And I was bummed because it's one of my favorite colors that they make, the light gray line, which is called pewter. But my garbage disposal disaster, I guess it came at just the right time because Easy Peasy is having their annual Mother's Day sale from this Friday to Sunday, so May 10th to 12th. You can get 20% off all of the Easy Peasy feeding gear with the affiliate discount code BLWMOM on orders of $50 or more. So this is a great time to stock up at 20% off because my regular Easy Peasy code is usually only for 10% off. So this bump up to 20% off is nice, but it's just for three days. So head to easypeasyfun.com to grab tiny spoons, their tiny cups, and the best suction mats and bowls for baby lead weaning. They have a really cool new bundle maker on their website if you want to group or piece a few items together or If you just don't want to think about it, then just grab one of the Easy Peasy First Foods sets. It has everything you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods with baby led weaning. That code is BLWMOM for 20% off Easy Peasy orders of $50 or more now through Sunday, May 12th at easypeasyfun.com. And happy Mother's Day to you. So we go through this long road of doing food challenges where we introduce the foods in our clinics under observation and see whether they have an allergic reaction or not because their labs are positive to these foods so if they don't have an allergic reaction then we strongly encourage that they put it into their diet because they're already sensitized we recommend strongly that it's a minimum of three times a week that they have it in their diet keep it in their regular exposure because if you avoid it again over a period of time you can become resensitized and become allergic to the food down the line. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding, leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby led weaning. Offering and having your baby eat a food is really the only way to know if your baby is allergic to it. But that doesn't mean it's not scary. Tina Cinder is a pediatrician and a food allergy researcher, and she's my guest today. She's a clinical associate professor of medicine and pediatrics at Stanford, and she's also the director of clinical translational research at Stanford's Sean N. Parker Center for Allergy and Asthma Research. So Dr. Cinder is also the mom of two small children, and she has that really unique blend of real life clinical experience, like she is in the clinic working every day with families who are living with food allergy, and she's also conducting research. So she looks into factors, for example, that increase the risk of food allergy, like eczema in babies, or even how does mom's diet during pregnancy affect food allergy outcomes in babies. And today, Dr. Cinder is going to teach some basic tips for introducing allergenic foods as a means to help reduce the risk of food allergy. Talking more about the theory behind it and why we want to do this and what the research is saying or is not saying. 
Now, there is a part in the interview where she mentions the LEAP study. So that's the learning early about peanut allergy, the landmark clinical trial that really shifted the entirety of what we know about introducing allergenic foods. And the study found that the early introduction of peanut actually helps prevent peanut allergy down the road. In that answer, that response, she mentions Bomba. So if you're not familiar with them, Bomba is a peanut-based snack that is common in the diets of young children in Israel, which is where a cohort of the LEAP study took place. So I didn't want to interrupt her to ask her to explain what Bomba is, but just a heads up, it's a peanut puff that babies eat routinely in Israel and other parts of the world. It was kind of key in that study to showing that early introduction of peanut foods helps to lower peanut risk. So with no further ado, I want to bring on Dr. Tina Cinder to talk about Food Allergy Prevention 101. Hi, Katie, and thank you for having me. I am so excited to chat with you because I've been familiar with your work for a long time and it was I was not, I'm glad we could finally get something on the books. I know you're a very busy practitioner, researcher, clinician, mom of two. Tell our audience, how did you become interested in both this kind of intersection of pediatrics and allergies? That's a great question. And I, I you know, I, when I talk to medical students and residents, they, they ask me this question sometimes. Um, when I first started medical school, I feel like I loved all of it. Every, every rotation I did, I was like, oh yes, this is, this is it. I, I would love to do this. Um, and so OBGYN was pretty high on my list. At one point, I even thought I wanted to be a surgeon um, until I, you know, one week into my pediatrics rotation, I knew that was for me. I just loved being in the environment. I just loved working with children. And at that time, I didn't have children of my own. And so that kind of pushed me towards going into pediatric residency. But I found pretty early on that I loved learning about the immune system. I, I just loved where all our little cells do their job and you know how things kind of pan out when they're not working and what you can do about it and how you can identify it. So all things immune system related, I it really excited me and I enjoyed it. And I allergy was almost accidental. It was one of our rotations and um, it wasn't my top choice. I wanted to do oncology as a rotation first. Um, but what I loved about allergy is I felt like I was treating the whole family. You, you, you know, you address the quality of life and it's not just the child. It impacts the whole family. And I, I loved that connection where I got to see them often, know, you know, where they're going on vacation or what new foods they've tried and just the excitement surrounding it all. I, um, I just felt like. I was making a difference um, in, in, you know, one patient at a time, including in their family's lives. So that's that's where I got into food allergies specifically, um, but allergies in general. I've never thought of food allergy treatment as treating the whole family, but of course you are, right? Ultimately, the goal is that the family is able to eat and enjoy foods together and that the one or however many people in the family that have the food allergy should be allowed to participate fully in the mealtime. So it, it is that kind of holistic approach. And I know in food allergy, a lot has changed in the world of introducing allergenic foods. Personally, when I was studying to be a dietitian over 20 years ago, it was, you know, we learned no dairy until age one, no eggs until age two, and hold on peanuts, tree nuts, and fish until three. At real high level, what is different today versus those recommendations from 20 years ago when it comes to introducing allergenic foods to our babies? I think part of the reason there, there has been so much change is because truthfully, we don't completely understand our immune system. There are a lot of redundancies. And when we think we understand it, 
um, and we make these guidelines and you try it out and you realize you've done the opposite and have not really helped in the way you had hoped to do. So we have seen this real change in the guidelines, which really just reflects how much more st we still need to learn about our immune system and how we develop food allergies. But our latest guidelines are really based on this instrumental study called the LEAP study performed in the UK, where they found kind of children who were deemed to be high risk or already sensitized. And one group of patients, they gave, gave peanut containing foods, um, specifically bamba is what they gave children. And another uh, group, they didn't give them the bamba. And in the cohort that had peanut uh, introduction early, um, had a much lower rate of food allergy down the line. And I was just at a meeting where one of the investigators who was in the original study was telling us about their follow-up studies and just continuing to follow these patients long-term. So it, that study has been so crucial in just changing our mindset about food allergies. And that it led to other studies such as the EAT study where it wasn't just peanut, but multiple other allergens to see if early introduction to many allergens can have the same impact. And that study too was very promising. And based on these guidelines and across Europe, across Australia and Canada, um, we have it in the US now as well, where we recommend early introduction with peanut. And even though it's not explicitly stated, allergists are recommended to encourage early introduction for all foods, not just peanut. So we recently had Dr. Gupta on the podcast, Dr. Ruchi Gupta, and she was talking about why doctors are still, for the most part, not really talking about introducing allergenic foods early. A recent paper first found that only 13% of parents and caregivers are aware of the recommendations to introduce peanuts to babies early and often. Do you think this is a problem as well? Or, I mean, you are a parent and I love having researchers on who are actually practitioners as well. So you see what the recommendations are, are supposed to be, but then you're in the clinic and you're like, are parents actually getting the message is it trickling down from the research? Do you think parents are starting to hear this message more about new updated guidelines regarding early and often introduction of allergenic foods? That's a really good point. And I, I just saw Ruchi a few months ago at a global food allergy prevention summit where we all just kind of talked about ways to, you know, prevent food allergy in the first place. Yes. And I, I think one of the discussions we had is that our allergy experts and allergists, we are just maybe not doing a good enough job disseminating the information. We need to make it easy for the pediatrician and the primary provider to be able to just disseminate the information and not have to, you know, figure out the how often and the how much and the when. And so I, I do think some of that comes from not very explicitly stated clear guidelines from the allergy community. So I, I feel strongly that we should be putting out statements to help guide pediatricians and what kind of information to provide the families and patients. And the way I come across this is we have some studies where we are enrolling pregnant moms to understand the development or you know lack of development of food allergy in those babies at three years of age um, as well as we're recruiting uh, infants less than two months of age and seeing you know the connection between eczema and dry skin and developing development of food allergy so we are fielding this early introduction the how to the how much often and we're also getting asked by pediatricians themselves where they're at a loss of what exact guidelines to give to families. 
So yes, I do think the information is a little piecemeal and haphazard and is not being consistently uh, disseminated. And that's where the allergy societies and groups can truly play a role. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. One thing I'm noticing, you're talking about the kind of confusion is on the other end of the discussion, it's in some cases, not that the parents are waiting too long to introduce the allergenic foods or not doing them at all. Some of them are wanting to do it too early. So four and five months of age, which is before babies are safe to eat foods other than infant milk. So outside of that small subset of the population of babies who are deemed to be at high risk for peanut allergy, so those who already have an egg allergy and or severe eczema, is there any compelling reason to introduce allergenic foods at four or five months of age versus waiting until six months? Uh, What I typically tell my families is to really see if your child is developmentally ready. Like, are they really, what's key in, I feel like food allergy treatment um, for those who have developed food allergy, but in general, kind of eating of foods in general, just kind of following the cues of your baby to see like, are they, coming? Are they putting things in their mouth? Are they showing an interest in food? Do they want to be eating? And to really kind of look at these cues from the baby before we all try to jump in and start feeding them allergens at four months of age. For instance, for my own children, my second born, she's eight years old now, was showing interest in food much earlier than my 10 year old now, where if he could, he would just probably be drinking milk forever. Um, So they just had a very different approach to food and you have to kind of tweak your parenting a little bit based on what your child's needs are. So I I tend to be less prescriptive about the exact time. That being said, some of the data has been done in children as young as four months of age. So if you have a four-month-old who is showing interest in food, it's not going to harm the child if you start giving them small amounts just to taste and put it around their mouth or not around their mouth, but on their lip. So early introduction of allergenic foods, we know it's the one thing. It's like that one risk factor that parents and caregivers have some impact on, right? We can't do anything to lower the risk of, you know, existing food allergy in the family or history of allergic disease. But parents know, okay, I have this job and I want to introduce the allergenic foods. I think, you know, we as a feeding and research community have good data for this on PINA, right? You mentioned the LEAP study. Fairly good data on this for egg and milk. You mentioned the EAT study, but what about the other kind of less common allergenic foods? What research is being done right now? Because they always say, you know, more research is needed. Sometimes I think researchers say that for like freaking job security. I'm like, you guys are always saying that, like you're the researcher, why don't you do it? But like, what about the other allergenic foods, right? We think about the, the list of the big nine, right? Fish and shellfish, tree nuts, soy, wheat, sesame. Should we also be doing those early and often? Because you kind of said before, like, there's no real definitive data, but we also know there's like no real benefit to withholding the introduction of those foods, right? Like it is this huge gray area. But you're absolutely right. So the way I have internalized all the available data out there is to encompass that diversity of diet is important. Um, So really as much variety as you get in there, as many different foods that you get in there is only going to help and it's not going to hurt. The data is promising, but the problem is the data is only as good as the study that was conducted and performing these kind of studies, as you can imagine, is really, really difficult to really kind of, you know, capture the exact amount and how much food are they doing it, you know, five times a week. So adherence rates and just the ability of families to continue with these 
studies is very difficult. And that's where the data is. It's hard to say definitively, like this is the amount, this is how frequently, because the, the it all kind of falls apart over time. But that being said, in the, the data we do have, we've seen that this is feasible and there's no harm to the babies. And we have data showing diversity of diet is important. And I love that concept of diet diversity. I teach a hundred first foods program. So we help parents introduce their babies to a hundred foods before turning one. And I'm very close as a friend and, but also professionally with Karina Venter. And she's a big advocate for diet diversity and this whole idea of like the more exposure and experience that babies can have with foods. Like parents are so scared to try this, but if we show them how to do it safely, and I think Karina also being a dietitian, that's where we come in, showing parents how to do this safely. Because as you know, you can't just shove a spoon of peanut butter in a four-month-old's mouth. They are going to choke on that. So we have to modify these foods to make them safe. And I appreciate what you're saying from the research standpoint that it is hard to design these studies. They are incredibly expensive. And where I take issue is like, if you like, look at LEAP, for example, right? They That particular research design, they did six grams of peanut protein per week, equivalent to close you know, to three teaspoons of peanut butter. And then you get brands that are like, well, we put the exact amount of peanut protein into this product that they use in the LEAP study. It's like, well, there's nothing to say that if the researchers had designed it with any more or any less protein, that it would have been more or less protective. Like, we just don't know that. So I think researchers do need to be hesitant to put out these very stringent guidelines for pediatricians. Give your baby three teaspoons of peanut butter because that may or may not necessarily, quote unquote, solve the problem. But we know that waiting until two to do peanut is not the answer either. Right. So it's somewhere in between there. That's right. In fact, some data uh, pilot studies, so they're not as large as something like uh, LEAP, but some data does show that amounts as small as 2.5 milligrams, which is tiny. One peanut is 300 milligrams of protein. So 2.5 milligrams of protein may be enough to give you the protection of staving off food allergy. So very small amounts may be good enough. And parents ask that question, well, how much does it count? How much counts? You know, at the beginning, your baby's not actually eating that much. So there are times where you will offer it where they might not even interact with that protein. That's that's why we need to do it early and often. And I know that recommendation is frustrating to parents because it's not very specific. Well, how early? We kind of covered that earlier, but the how often part, could you speak to that like repeated exposure to the protein and that, it, that these allergic reactions might not occur on the first exposure? Because I think that message sometimes parents are like, oh, we did shellfish once, so he's not allergic. It's like, no, it doesn't work like that. No, no, you're exactly right. And to that point, sometimes, you know, babies probably are wearing the food more than they've actually ingested it. So what I like to say, and again, it really is dependent on what works for the family, but I like, in my head, I like to think of it as to feel confident that you are not allergic to it. Maybe in the first two weeks, if you're able to give it like three times a week um, and you've introduced it where you feel that even a small amount has been ingested and the child has been doing okay. In my mind, I feel like that is very good evidence that you are not allergic. But at the same time, for the highly allergenic foods, if there's a question or concern, there's strong family history, the child has a lot of eczema that puts them at high risk for food allergy, or they're already food allergic to another allergen. In those cases, I will go as far as to say, after you've established that they're not allergic, keep it in some form in the diet at least once a week just so they're you know they're getting used to the food they're getting used to the texture and you're not at risk for limiting exposure over time are there any benefits to withholding the introduction of allergenic foods 
At this time, not that I'm aware of. Uh, that being said, depending on the medical condition and what other uh, health issues might be ongoing, there are some patients where we may actually ask them to withhold introduction of foods in general, especially if there's any feeding disorders or um, if there were you know, any swallowing dysfunction and things like that. Okay, but for a typically developing population. For a typical developing child, no, not that. And if anything, if some of my families, they're so, because of family history, they have an older child that's already food allergic. They're so nervous about the introduction of foods in their younger child. And from the safety standpoint, we have found that those early infant allergic reactions tend to be very mild. We do not see very severe, severe, severe symptoms with those. So if if you are able, to, if you are giving a food and they do end up having an allergic reaction, it almost is helping us identify it early so we can do something about it and help support the family. So I I cannot think of a, a, a compelling reason not to do early introduction in a typically developing child. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. And I know you're working on like talking points for pediatricians. That one is huge. Short of saying your baby is not going to die from anaphylaxis from a food allergy reaction. You're actually hard pressed to find even in the literature a case of that happening. Not to say that it couldn't happen, but anaphylactic reactions from food allergy are much more severe the older the child gets. So if we need any more impetus to encourage parents to do this earlier, it's actually safer to do it earlier. Now, as a dietitian, I have problems with the four and the five month olds. Like if parents are not educated about this, the risk of choking when your baby does not have the trunk support and the head and the neck control to facilitate a safe swallow. Like if there is not hard and fast data to show that this is safer to do at four and five months than it is to six, then I feel we should be waiting until six months of age, especially when we're talking about exclusive breastfeeding, right? The World Health Organization, American Academy of Pediatrics, they recommend exclusive breastfeeding until six months of age. If you're telling mom to introduce solid foods, and I know you guys are saying like, oh, just play around with it and put it on the lips. But what they hear is, oh, now they're starting to eat. So now I'm breastfeeding less. And I maintain that that's an anti-breastfeeding message because we should be promoting breastfeeding and then starting solid foods when, as you said, the baby is developmentally ready. Now, obviously pediatricians... And dietitians oftentimes disagree on what developmentally ready is. So it's, it is this ongoing conversation that, to be honest, is, our parents had the same conversation. If you look back at, you know, recommendations for introducing solid foods, it's fluctuated all over the place. But I do think pediatricians need to be careful when they give blanket statements saying four to six months, because four-month-old babies can't sit relatively independently, you know, and we know that. So I think if there's kind of leads me into my next question, I wanted to know what your thoughts were on this kind of over-medicalization of the introduction of allergenic foods, like this marketing to parents' fears. They're, you're so scared to feed your baby real food. So now we're trying, you got all these companies and supplement companies trying to push expensive supplement subscription models with powders that they mix into bottles and traditional baby foods versus just making safe versions of those foods for the babies to try. Not to talk to any particular brand, but what do you think about this kind of shift in the conversation about introducing allergenic foods where it's less about food and it's more about supplements? When I speak to my families, I try to kind of work through what their fears are and what is feasible. And, you know, for my children, I, and this was before the availability of all these kind of allergens, but I, I wasn't, I remember I, I had just started allergy fellowship. My son was six months old and I, I bought myself a bottle of Benadryl and like allergy clinic is down the way. I'm going to introduce these foods. 
And the way I did it, I would, I would just blend in all the peanut, tree nuts, whatever I needed into the applesauce and just turn it into a little applesauce puree and feed it that way. And having, you know, speaking to parents, you know, if that, based on what I'm hearing from them, if they feel more comfortable buying a product and it takes the stress out of the how much, then I will support that as long as I, you know, I'm present if they have any reactions or questions. But at the same time, I try to highlight that you don't need that product either. It's, it's also important to kind of just, you know, for the child to have a have a sense of the smell and the taste and the texture, of course, you know, in a form that's developmentally appropriate for the child because they're still, you know, nuts and certain forms can still be a choking hazard. So I, I am a big fan of using food equivalences, like things like the real food product, if you can. But at the same time, if this makes a parent's life easier, then I'm all about kind of what works for them. But so I, I tend to be open to kind of what works for each person. But I guess for myself, I, I did the former, which is I, I just bought the real foods and found a way to introduce it. You mentioned something interesting, and I don't know if you did it on purpose, but uh, mixed nut butter with peanut butter together in applesauce. If your baby had had an allergic reaction to that, how would you have known if it was peanut or cashew or walnut or almond? Or why would you combine them together? You no, know, at first I did them individually and then okay. I did all, yeah. So you're not advocating for mixing up all the allergenic foods yeah, together. Yeah. Okay. And then, so after I did a few um, by itself, I was you know, in fellowship, my husband traveled a lot. I was like, I cannot do this. I'm just putting it all together and we'll run that way. And 94% of infants are not going to have an allergic reaction. And you wouldn't have known that had you not fed that to your baby. And I think that's an important message for parents and caregivers is the only way to know if your child is allergic to a food is to feed it to them. And by not feeding it to them, you could potentially be increasing the risk of food allergy. Not to blame anyone. This is, this is scary stuff. But at the end of the day, most of your babies are not going to have a reaction. And if they do have a reaction, then thankfully, there's wonderful resources like your clinic where you do a variety of things. I was before the interview, we were just kind of chatting. You do an OIT clinic, an EOE clinic. Do you always work with families after they've had a diagnosis of food allergy? And can you talk a little bit about the diagnosis process? Because we've also had experts on telling us, you know, gosh, 50% of positive food allergy test results are false positives. These parents want to go in and just test for everything. But it doesn't work like that. So anything you can share about the process of diagnosing a food allergy? Yes. So with the diagnosis of food allergy, it's a tricky spot because you you said it perfectly. 50% of the time, there's a false positive rate. So it's really hard to tease out a true clinical reactivity versus sensitization, especially if there's no history of actual ingestion, because that is the gold standard. Gold standard is if you've eaten the food and you've reacted to it. The labs are just there to kind of help support or you know, provide guidance down the line. So if I have a, a child, and this actually, you know, we, we were talking about all the foods at the same time in introductions, and we've seen that with these allergen packets where all the allergens are together and the child has a reaction. And then, you know, generally these children tend to be allergic, meaning they have eczema, they have a high IgE values. And so every food you've tested is now positive, but you're like, it, it's not that all those foods are triggering the allergic reaction. There's gotta be a few in there. So we go through this long road of doing uh, food challenges where we introduce the foods in our clinics under observation and see whether they have an allergic reaction or not. Cause their labs are positive to these foods. 
So if they don't have an allergic reaction, then we strongly encourage that they put it into their diet because they're already sensitized. We recommend strongly that it's a minimum of three times a week that they have it in their diet. Keep it in their regular exposure because if you avoid it again over a period of time, you can become resensitized and become allergic to the food down the line. So some of these patients we've had to do that where we've done the food challenges in clinic, series of challenges to see what we can safely reintroduce back into the diet. And that brings us back to, you know, when I see an initial visit where there is a either so two scenarios one is the child had an allergic reaction we have strong suspicion of what the food is if the parent requests blanket testing I, i'm all about shared decision making and i i would love to support families in any way they can but i really highlight that these tests can be misleading and we really need to encourage that they eat the food so i do try not to do labs for foods that i they have not ingested yet and I try to prepare them in terms of how to do the introduction safely, you know, making sure that, you know, both caregivers or multiple caregivers are around in a controlled environment. You have whatever emergency medications you have ready, you needed, you have access to emergency care if needed. But really, the gold standard is eating the food. So one group is, you know, they have a specific reaction. We do the testing and we go that way. Then another group of patients I see is there it's a little more the picture is a little more murky we don't know what the trigger was they've had an allergic reaction blanket testing was done and multiple foods are positive and those are the kiddos where they're now avoiding all these foods and we're really putting them at risk for developing food allergies for to some of those safe foods so it is those patients that we try to work so closely with and get them into clinic you know, as much as we can to get the, the foods into their systems early. Because time is of the essence. We I mean, One thing we know from the research is our immune systems are malleable when they're young. So the sooner we address this, the better the long-term outcomes. Dr. Cinder, which study related to infant or pediatric food allergy that you and your team are working on right now are you most excited about and why? How about this? I will bring up two different favorites. So my favorite in the infant setting is our SEAL study, which is really looking at food allergy prevention. And that to me, if we can get um, good information, is going to be such a huge contribution to the literature, to the field, and could have the possibility of making kind of a global impact. So in this study, we're enrolling babies with dry skin or eczema and then treating them aggressively with emollients as well as low potency steroids for the eczema to see if we control the eczema aggressively versus if we just do standard of care um, and just let the pediatrician kind of manage the eczema and the family manage the eczema, how the child does down the line. So we don't have early data yet, but I, I can't wait to see what the data ends up showing um, and whether there is a benefit to kind of helping manage the skin early. The other study that's one of my favorites is it's called a combined study. And this is for children uh, four years all the way up to 55 years of age. And we um, are doing multiple food oral immunotherapy. So these are kids and adults who've already developed food allergy. Um, and we're doing multi-food OIT with two different biologic injections that can actually you know soak up your ige floating around in your body and it, one drug does that and the other drug helps kind of minimize the allergic cells from migrating into your tissues 
So with the combination of those drugs plus the OIT, we're hopeful that it can get up to you a maintenance dose quicker, more safely, and have just um, good overall outcomes. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. I know you said you were just going to do two, but you had previously mentioned a study where you were enrolling pregnant mothers. What is it about pregnancy that you're studying that does or does not determine or predict future food allergy in the infant? And that's another um, cohort of patients that I feel like there's so many questions, right? Like, what do you eat during pregnancy? And like, what do you eat during breastfeeding that we just don't have a lot of answers to? I mean, all the data has now said is, well, it won't hurt, but the benefits is, you know, hasn't been super overwhelming either. So in the study, we're actually looking at so many different elements. We're looking at maternal diet, we're looking at medications, other existing conditions, but also looking at microbiome, um, both gut microbiome, skin microbiome, mucosal microbiome, because there is a connection between our microbial diversity and how our long-term development of food allergy as well. And I know this is something that's close to Karina Venter's heart as well. We've collaborated on studies before. And on the SEAL study, since I mentioned that first, Karina was instrumental in its design as well. And once the baby is born, we actually see them every six months, and then we see them again at a year. And we, we get skin swabs, we look at, you know, skin, epidermal water loss to get a sense of how dry the child's skin is. We're looking at their dietary history. We're looking at the foods they're introducing at what time. And that study long term, I think, has the potential to give us so much information in terms of identifying maybe some some positive associations that can show us that these things can actually reduce your risk or are protective and that would be so instrumental in our long-term guidance that we give families. I didn't know you could study epidermal water loss. Like there's an objective measurement for yes. determining that because, you know, parents hear eczema and you guys aren't just talking about the run of the mill eczema like all babies have. When we're talking about like severe eczema, that's so different. And parents are like, how do you know? And what if I don't have a dermatologist? Like it would be so cool if parents could know like exactly how dry their baby's skin is. Yes. Just one more thing to worry about. <laughs> One more thing to worry about, but what we're finding is some of the kids with dry skin, run-of-the-mill, typical baby dry skin, sometimes has kind of behaves similar to those with eczema and can be the same risk factor for developing. Food. Oh my gosh. Now all the parents are going to be freaked out more about food. That's not the point of the, of the interview. What is it that you wish that all new parents of a baby who's just getting ready to transition to solid foods could know about introducing allergenic foods? A mentor once told me is that when I asked him this question was, you should live the way your grandparents lived. <laughs> and uh, so when I had my children, I was like, mom, you know, and my mom-in-law, like, how did you introduce foods to me? Let's just kind of go down that path. And so I was very open-minded and flexible with, and my mantra was diversity, dietary diversity. So I wasn't as focused on the allergens specifically, but just like as much that I could get in there um, is all helping in the long term is how I think of it. Where can our audience go to learn more about your work, Dr. Cinder? I would say that our website, the Sean and Parker Center for Allergy and Asthma Research, um, is our center, Food Allergy Center's website that has a listing of all our ongoing studies as well as past publications. So that could be that could be a good spot. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I appreciate all of your insight. I know the questions were kind of all over the board, but we just wanted to do like 
you know, prevention 101 and what's going on right now. And I really appreciate your take as someone actually working with families and doing the research because a lot of the researchers, I don't think they've ever fed a baby. And a lot of the baby feeding people don't know anything about research. So it's nice to see both sides of the coin because I think it's important that they talk to each other. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for asking such insightful questions. And really, I, I feel like you highlighted the fact that it's not easy and there's a lot of information needed to give very specific guidelines. But at the same time, I think whatever feels good, right, for a parent and their baby um, and is safe is uh, is going to be helpful in the long run. Yeah, but it feels good to be like, oh, this is too much. I'm just going to skip it and breastfeed forever. And that's also not the right answer. So we got to find somewhere right in the middle. Yeah. Thank you again. This was a great conversation. Yes, likewise. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Tina Sinders, kind of talking about a lot of different things as they are happening in the research world, or you will be hearing about them in the future because they're conducting the research right now, or interpreting previously done research and how that can help families with the introduction of allergenic foods. I'm going to put all of the references, including the different studies that Dr. Sinders was talking about in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at blwpodcast.com forward slash 382. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and this podcast and a special thanks to our partners at Airwave Media. If you guys like podcasts that feature food and science and using your brain, check out Airwave Media. We're online at blwpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time. From the terrifying power of tornadoes to sizzling summer temperatures, AccuWeather Daily brings you the top trending weather-related story of the day, seven days a week. You can learn a lot in just a few minutes with stories about impending hurricanes, winter storms, or even what not to miss in the night sky. So listen and subscribe to AccuWeather Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's AccuWeather Daily wherever you get your podcasts.